There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Runners Only with Dom Harvey, brought to you by Radix Nutrition. Coming up, Ryan Hall. I really don't feel like I'm the most talented marathoner, half marathoner that America has ever had. Without a doubt, not even close. Uh, fun fact here. Ryan Hall and I raced each other in the 2011 Boston Marathon. Only he had no idea we were racing. He had no idea who I was. That day I finished in place 5,528 with a time of 3 hours 20 minutes. Ryan finished in fourth place with a time of just under 2 hours and 5 minutes. That works out to be around about 2 minutes per kilometre quicker than me. That day I set no records. But he set a record that still stands now as the fastest marathon ever run by an American. On this episode, we trace the highs and lows of his illustrious running career, from that epic run in Boston, to the disappointment of having to pull out of the Olympic marathon in London, and also the injuries that ended up ending his career. Ryan gives us a peek behind the curtain on the massive physical and mental effort that goes into preparing for these huge races, both for himself as a runner and now in his role as a coach to his wife, Sarah Hall, who's a total badass, one of the best female runners in the world. We do talk so much more than just running, though. Ryan is now built like a tank as a result of years of weightlifting, so we chat about that transformation. He was 63 kilos when he stopped running. Now, I don't know what he weighs, but he kind of looks like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. We also chat about Ryan and his wife Sarah's decision to adopt four sisters from an orphanage in Ethiopia and the challenges of raising a biracial family who knew very little English. Ryan's a great dude. This is a story about resilience, perseverance, and the courage to let go, pivot, and embrace new paths. Ryan has such a top attitude. He might be the most laid-back and chilled-out, serious athlete you could ever meet. I loved our time together in Boston, and I hope you do too. Just before we begin, thanks to the sponsors of this episode, my friends at Radix Nutrition. If you haven't done so yet, you should check them out. They're an incredible New Zealand startup doing great things from their Waikato factory. A protein shake made with their powder is how I start the day every day, Monday to Sunday. They genuinely do, in my opinion, have the best flavours made with the best ingredients. They're not cheap, but they are the best. Check them out, radixnutrition.co.nz. That's radix, spelled R-A-D-I-X. All right, let's get into it. Runners Only with Dom Harvey and Ryan Hall. Hey, Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Runners Only with Dom Harvey and running royalty, Ryan Hall. G'day, mate. Hey, how you doing, Dom? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for meeting up with us today in Boston. This is like your your home ground in a way, I guess. Uh Every weekend here in Boston is just special. You know, if people haven't had a chance to be out here, it's just like, it's probably the only place you go to, the only weekend you go to where like runners really do feel like rock stars, you know, like everyone knows everyone and it's just a big, a big party. You know, the excitement in the city and stuff is just contagious. It's yeah, really fun. Yeah. And, and today of all days, um, I need to extend an extra thanks to you for meeting up with me because um, it's your, your, your wife uh, who you coach as well, Sarah Hall. It's her 40th birthday. Yep. Today she's 40 so she's uh upstairs getting a massage right now so you know she's not missing me too much <laughs> how good, how good. Actually, i got her a little um a little present mum do you want to bring those flowers in 
You've got oh, some flowers wow, to pass thank on. Thank you. That was very nice of you. Pass on, pass on awesome. to your wife just for giving you an hour out on She'll her special that. day. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, um, so we're, we're doing this on a, a Saturday afternoon. So we're two days away from um, this year's Boston Marathon where she's, um, she's racing. Um, so how does the next couple of days look like for Sarah Hall and her coach Ryan Hall? Yeah, I mean, try and just lay low as much as you can, you know. I mean, obviously you're here to support the race and they want you to do some events to, to promote the race, you know. So she'll be doing a little bit of that. But they try to do a lot of that stuff up front. So she already did all her press stuff. So she'll just be laying low, eating a lot. And um, honestly, we always say it's just trying to not go crazy the last couple days so you're just it's really easy to get really far in your head so almost trying to not think about it until you uh you know get out to the start line start warming up and you start to engage and kind of but you don't want to you don't want to be like a warrior trapped in your room you want to <laughs> wait to become a warrior until you get out yeah. to that start line so right now it's all about just like low positive yeah so your role as a coach in these um final hours before the run um does it become like a like a like a counselor a therapist a mentor what is it Honestly, a lot of it's just reminding your athletes of what they've done, um, who they are, reminding them to trust themselves. Like we were just out on the on the riverfront here doing a run together and I was biking next to her and I was talking to her about different scenarios that could play out, what she might be nervous about. And I was just like, listen, just you just need to trust yourself, you know, because you, you, the thing is. It feels good. Having a race plan brings security, right? Because it's mm. real firm. You're like, this is what I'm going to do. This is exactly how it's going to play out. But that is not life. And that is not the best way to go into a race, in my opinion. The best way to go in a race is completely open-minded and know how you're going to react in a lot of different situations that could present themselves. But really, like, not having a firm plan in your mind is advantageous from a racing perspective. But it's very unsettling for an athlete to be like, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what I'm going to do. But that's where you got to just fall back and be like, I trust myself. I know I'm going to make the right decision at the right time. I'm going to have a good head on my shoulders. And she does. She's 40 years old. She knows what she's doing. So a lot of it's just like reminding her you're in really good shape. You're ready for this race. Trust your instincts out there. Don't follow any moves that you shouldn't be following. And that's that's probably the hardest thing for pros, you know, because a lot of these moves that will be made out there on Monday, like she could cover them and maybe she will cover them, but maybe not. You know, it's not always the wisest thing to go with every single move, especially when you're on a course like Boston where there's lots of ups and downs in the course. Um, sometimes, like when I ran this course and ran my best races, I wasn't with the main group the whole time. Like it kind of yo-yoed. Sometimes I was like, nope, that one's too hot for me. I'm just give them a little bit of space and maybe I'm going to keep my eyes up. Hopefully I'll catch them, you know, a mile down the road maybe I won't maybe I'll be running by myself for the rest of the race but that's where it's just like you got to fall back on like what is best for you you know our competitors are supposed to draw out our best stuff out of us but ultimately like you have to you have to run your own plan with your own mind with your own giftedness in your own way as well Mm. and what were you like when you were running like um on the the night before a run or the morning of a run were you like a bundle of nerves were you just like excited and frothing about getting into it (laughs) Uh, I was mainly trying to like not think about it. I think I like to like just watch funny movies, watch inspiring movies, hang out with family and friends, try and laugh as much as I can. I think that's probably the best recipe for athletes the day before race is just try to like have fun. Distraction. Yeah, Yeah, just distraction. Like you don't want to be thinking about it a lot. 
like you're just going to burn up all this energy and be like a caged animal. And then when the time comes, you're already so emotionally drained. So it's like, you're not only like preparing yourself physically by eating a whole bunch of food, which is hard to do when you're really nervous and you got to just force down these calories and you don't feel like it, but you know, like when I get to 21 miles, I'm going to be glad I ate this extra (laughs) piece of bread right now, you know? But so there's the physical component, but there's also very much the emotional component that you have to be aware of as well. Being like, I need to store up my emotional energy. And so the days before need to just be real chill, real lighthearted, real fun. Yeah, that's amazing. All right. Uh, this is your podcast, not your wife's podcast. So we'll um, we'll wind it right back. So your your dad was a runner growing up, eh? Hey? Not a not a great runner, but like a sub three, sub yeah, three yeah, hour exactly. runner. Okay, yep, yep. so so a, a good weekend warrior. Yeah. What yeah. was what was his PB? Uh, I don't think he ever broke three. I think oh, he was all. I think he was always like right on the cusp. Never did it. He was more into baseball, basketball, and football. He's also a little bit of a bigger guy. Like my mom was smaller, more like built like a runner. My dad was a big kind of strong baseball player kind of guy. So I think I got more of like my mom's genetic side. Um, so he always kind of struggled with the run in a little bit, but he he had a big engine as well. But yeah, I don't think he ever broke three. Wow. So so you. What made you decide to get into it? Because I, I read in your book, um, you just said to him, you, you loved team sport. Yep. And then one weekend you said to your dad, oh, I want to do this 15, 15 mile, 15 yeah. kilometer, 15 yeah. mile run around a lake. Yeah, exactly. How, yeah. Old, how old were you then? Yeah, I was 13 years old oh, then yeah. and hated to run. And <laughs> I always say like running is a very difficult sport to get into because it's the least amount of fun at the beginning. Usually the <laughs> things that grab you, the grab kids, are yeah. the things that are immediately fun. You go do it one time, you're like, oh, that was so fun. I want to go do that again running's not like that usually like you go on your first run you're like dude that freaking hurt and everything's sore and that wasn't fun I had to stop and walk and you're not just like floating along and that was me like I did this 15 mile run with my dad I wasn't floating through it like it was a long hard painful uh not necessarily it was enjoyable in the sense of accomplishment I felt when I finished it you know and I felt like I overcame a big challenge but not like enjoyable sensations that I was feeling it during that four-hour run or however long it took me to do that initial run around the lake so so what I'm hearing is that you didn't really have natural talent. No, it was more hard work. You must have some natural talent, obviously, um, but it's more hard work that got you to where you got to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have a, I definitely have a big engine. All my brothers, my little brother's racing on Monday as well, just debuted in his first marathon. He's 35. He just ran his first marathon, ran 2.12. So... Uh, you know, all of us just have naturally big engines for sure, without a doubt. So there is a level of talent there, but I really don't feel like I'm the most talented marathoner, half marathoner that America has ever had, without a doubt, not even close. When I look at the guys who are super talented, I look at the guys who are really, really quick on the track over 5,000, 10,000 meters, Grant Fisher, guys like that. You're like, man, dude, if I could have run like 1250 for 5,000, what could I have done in a marathon? Because I was a 13, 16 guy, which sluggish. Yeah. Just just a hobby jogger out there. But you'd win just about any park run in the world. (laughs) That's the great thing about running though, is you really, you can get so much out of yourself you know you do have to have a certain measure of talent without a doubt um but you can get a heck of a long ways just off a lot of hard work and so that's where like you know not to jump into a whole different subject when people talk about doping in our sport and guys who are cheating i'm like listen i wasn't the most talented guy i wasn't taking anything and i ran 59 minutes for a half in shoes you could bend in half right Mm -hmm. now you got guys in shoes that are running a minute you know the shoe alone is taking a minute off at times and half marathons and 
if they're way, significantly more talented than I was and they trained as hard as I was, of course they should be running way faster than I was ever running, you know? So that's why I like when people just accuse people of doping based off performance, I'm like, eh, nah, I don't, I never, I never jump to that conclusion just because I know myself and I know my level of talent. And I'm like, there's guys out there who just have a whole lot more of what, what I had. And so it's, yeah, you know, yeah. it's possible to run some pretty insane times. What are you, since you brought it up, what are you, um, what are your thoughts about the, the shoes now? I, I, I dropped a couple of hundred bucks on a pair of Nike Vapoflies, whatever they are, <laughs> yesterday, and I had a run of them this morning, and they're incredible. It was your first run? Yeah. Do you feel like you're on the moon a little bit? <laughs> Bro, phenomenal. Felt like I was, like, bouncing. Yeah, the shoes are they're amazing. They're super fun. And for like now, so I raced at 137 pounds. I'm five foot 10. Now I'm 177 pounds and being heavier in that shoe, you get even more out of it. So like you run different in those shoes, right? So like in the shoes I was in really minimal, really bendy, not a lot of cushion, just eats your legs up on courses like Boston. Your quads are just freaking gone at mile like 16, you know, and you have to go the rest of the way. But these shoes, this, and I, I run in super shoes all the time because I love them. They feel amazing. But you run totally different. In, in the shoes I was in, it's more like you're a cheetah pulling the ground, yeah. trying to be real light on your feet, right? And now in these super shoes with the cushion and the plate combined, it's it's totally different game. Now it's load the ground as hard as you can. Slam your leg into the ground as hard as you can, and you're going to get a huge amount of return out of out of the shoe, out of the ground, and it's going to propel you forward really quick. So it, it's fun for me. Like all I'll strap on those shoes and I'll run a mile in t- like under five minutes when I'm not even in that good of shape and just have no business running that fast. But I can just load that shoe up and it beats, it can beat up your lower legs. So there's the injury component. So, you know, I wouldn't suggest anyone just get a pair and do every single run in them. Um, like I'm actually trying to get my athletes to use them less in training and still race in them right. because there is quite a few like lower leg injuries that are also popping up as a result of those. So there, you got to be careful in training, but they're, they're super, they're (laughs) so fun. They're so fun. This this is um, uh, completely hypothetical, but your, so your time is the American record for the half marathon, which is 5943. 5943. And the marathon, which is uh, 204.50. I ran 204.50. Oh man. 58, 56. Yeah. One of those. How how much quicker do you think you could have gone with um, the, the, the current shoes? hypothetical of course but yeah i mean yeah it's all hypothetical right and i never raced in them when i was elite runner so actually i asked dathan ritzenheim who i competed with that question because he ran in the shoes we were in and he ran in the super shoes in, in both those i was like dude how big of a difference is it like what do you think you know you ran in both of them he's like i think it's easy a minute and the half two minutes in a marathon so so two to three seconds a kilometer at the pace you're running that's insane oh it's that is night and day different i mean getting a minute quicker going from 59 minutes to 58 minutes is that's a world that's a lifetime of work to get that much Mm. improvement so it it, you know they really did they changed the scene completely so yeah so you start running with your dad um then you give up team sports which um in your book it sounds like it was a it was a hard thing to do uh you're basically leaving your mates behind and yeah, for a solo sport. Then when did you realize you were good? You started doing cross country and shorter stuff, right? Yeah, you know what's funny is I thought I was really good because I grew <laughs> I grew up in Big Bear Lake, which is a tiny little mountain town in Southern California. We get snow. I lived like a mile away from ski resort, so grew up like skiing, snowboarding, all that. But I wasn't exposed to running at all. There was no track team at my 
high school, the only tracks we had in town were like filled with weeds and stuff. No one ran. So I didn't even know what a good time was. You know, we didn't have social media, all this stuff now. <laughs> and, yeah. So like I ran a mile, my first mile ever in middle school was during PE gym class. And I ran like 552. I thought that was like blazing fast. I was like, that is so fast. And little did I, <laughs> little did I know that my wife, Sarah, she, at that same age, she was running under five minutes for a mile. If we would have grown up in the same hometown, I would have never ran. Cause I would have been like, this girl's a minute quicker than me. So it's yeah. funny how like, it's all relative, right? Like my daughter was just asking me this the other day. She's like, is, how good am I at the 400 meters? She just ran like 67 for a 400. She's like, how good is that? And I couldn't even answer the question. I was like, it all depends who you compare yourself to. Like, yeah, what for is sure. Good, for sure. How old is she? Uh, she's in ninth grade right now. What age is that? Uh, so she's 15. 15? Yeah. yeah. Jeez, 67 for 15 sounds pretty good. It's not It's not. But yeah, it's Again, it's, yeah. it's <laughs> like, are you comparing yourself to like a world-class sprinter or to like your, your yeah. friends in yeah. class, you know? <laughs> so when, so, you, so you, you, you do uh, cross-country and shorter stuff for a while. Why the transition to marathon? Yeah, I never thought I'd run a marathon. Um, it was really as a result of going over to Europe and getting my butt kicked on the track. I remember I was racing against uh, Kinanisa Bekele and mm. Craig Mottram and those guys, and we were in London doing a 5K on the track, and those guys just destroyed me. I was nowhere even near the, the race. I was watching the race on the big screen, running down <laughs> the backstretch, you know? And I remember just being so frustrated after that race because I really felt like I'd been given a gift to run with the best guys in the world, and here I was like not even close to being in the race and I was running pretty well for me at that time over 5,000 you know that was a year after I ran 13 Mm. 16 so it was during that time I was like I gotta figure out what I'm best at like I've I've been very close-minded I was always like I'm gonna be a 1500 guy like I'm gonna be a miler no one's gonna tell me I'm not fast enough or whatever and then finally I opened up to longer races went to the 5k was much more successful I mean I should have known from my training like when I was in high school 18 years old I could run 10 miles under five minute pace and that's I mean that was very telling that threshold strength comes very natural to me you know but I wanted to do the short fast stuff and it was good to work on that like kids should be working on their speed because your speed over 1500 meters if you're a marathoner that's going to determine how high your ceiling is how good you can get in this sport it's going to be determined by your 1500 meter speed I really believe that look at a guy like Kipchoge we ran in the world championships together in Finland he was like third in the world and running you know I don't even know what his PR was at that time but running under 13 or whatever and just you know, look at his ceiling now. You yeah. Know? Well, it's funny that you you bring it up that you you know well I was going to say sucked, but no, just weren't as successful as what you wanted to be in the five thousand because it's the same sort of path with Kipchoge, isn't it? He medaled at a couple of Olympics and then for the the third Olympic campaign didn't even make the Kenyan squad. Uh huh. Yeah. That's when he started to panic, and that's when yeah. Patrick Sang, his coach, said, "No, why don't you try longer?" Yeah. Yeah. Just start moving up. But if so, you- see what happens because Mo Farah as well, he did very well at five and ten, and then it's like. When you start to drop off the speed there, is it like, well, there's always a marathon? Yeah, and, and that's the natural progression of the athlete, you know? Yeah. It's like when you can no longer compete with the best guys in the world, the shorter stuff, you start moving up, but you still have that speed in your system, mm. you know? Um, so that that's critical. You got uh, Even with just like with run-free training and the athletes that we work with, we're working on 1,500-meter mile speed with those athletes, and they don't have to race it, but they need to work on it, and that's why you need a coach to make you do that stuff because when you're – 
40, 50, 60 years old, you don't want to go out to the track or go to a hill and do like 200 meter repeats, you know, because that stuff generally doesn't feel great to do for a marathon runner. But I would, I would argue that doing what you don't feel like doing is probably the most important work you, you need to be doing. But you got to have like someone there yeah. who's forcing you to do it. Yeah. So when, when you were at your peak of uh, marathon training, what did a week look like for you? Uh, so I was training twice a day, most days, except mm. for the long run day. Um, like, like twice as in running or like a yeah. run in a gym? Yeah, yeah, twice running. So we'd run, you know, anywhere between 50 minutes to 75 minutes in the morning if we're just doing an easy run. And then a hard session like two to three times a week with a long run in there as well. Um, and just tired all the time to be honest with you like we are training you're training right on the line of what your body can handle you know so I remember if I missed a nap I was in a bad mood like my my schedule was like train in the morning come back maybe stretch roll take care of stuff around the house whatever I need to do for a couple hours lunch two hour nap get up run again go to the gym gym routine come home starving eat a quick dinner go to bed early and then just it's being a professional athlete is not a glamorous life mm. or at least a professional runner yeah. it's, it's very monotonous you're doing the same thing over and over again and your life has to be really simple like I didn't have energy for much else outside of running and training and sleeping so it's a big sacrifice you know you watch these athletes out here on Monday and it, they make it look like so much fun and so glamorous and everyone's going crazy and it is it's super fun but it's also a big sacrifice for these guys you know disappearing to training camp some of them for three months not seeing their family and just eat sleep train that's it but that's that's what it takes to compete now at this level yeah well i suppose like the marathon week is, is fun it's a week of celebration and catching up with people and you know just enjoying the occasion but what, what everyone doesn't see is the you know the stuff that goes on in the shadows months and months before and what you described to me before and the way you described it it sounds pretty bloody bleak but <laughs> did you enjoy it at the time is, is, oh yeah, yeah yeah i mean i i was never i wasn't going out in high school and going to parties i hated dances like i didn't gravitate towards being really social like I always just kind of liked being home so for like a homebody type person it's a really good lifestyle um, but even for my wife who's not a homebody person she likes to be out and doing stuff it is gratifying because you are um, investing all of yourself in something and I think no matter what it is, anytime you're like, I'm going to go after this thing as hard as I can. I'm going to see what I can do. It doesn't even matter what the thing is. Anytime you're that focused on trying to do something, it's a pretty gratifying thing to pursue it with that kind of passion, that kind of drive, that kind of like, let's go find out and see what I can do here. It's fun. Yeah, well, for me and anyone else that has uh, followed your journey since running on um, Instagram, you just seem like a dude that hyperfixates on whatever it is you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's very true. I am, like, very, like in or out that's why when there was no like gradual retirement for me you know like some people yeah. just kind of like they keep racing you don't even know all of a sudden they're not there anymore you know they just kind of drift out of the sport I was like when I'm done I'm done I'm on to the next mm. but actually it's funny because you know I got into lifting and saw how far I could take that over about six years which was super fun because for me this is also like science and an experiment of one you know like my gym my garage in my house my gym I call it my lab because every time I go in there <laughs> I'm trying something new I'm learning something and like I've 
learned so much through sports about myself, about my body, but also about how to work with my athletes now. Like my athletes, they're directly benefiting from my science experiments that I'm holding on myself. And I'm careful not to be like, they're going to react the same way I react, but you can take principles that you learn on yourself and try it out with other people. And oftentimes those principles also work. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to get into the whole weightlifting stuff. We'll get, we'll get there in time, but it's worth bringing up. There's a photo of you online and honestly, it looks like your head has been photoshopped onto some other <laughs> dude's body. Like it's just, do you, do you know the photo I'm talking about? There's one in particular. I think it was in Men's Journal or Men's Health or something. And it's like, that can't be his actual rig. It's incredible. Yeah. Stacked. Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's just fun to see, like, uh, you know, I did something I was naturally talented at, you know, to a measure. And then to now do something, though, where I'm not talented at it. And it's just, like, it's all hard work. Like, I have the total wrong genetics to really be, like, moving a lot of weight or to put on muscle. It, it's a real challenge. It's like, right now, like, I'm doing this interview. I got 50 grams of protein in here that I'm going to drink during the interview. It's like nutrition sleep everything has to be dialed right and it's all the hard work that I did in running I'm doing it the same way but now just like on a hobby of lifting level but everything I learned in running it helps with the next season you know just back to the running for a bit so the 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 Boston Marathon 2011 would you say that's like the run of your life the performance of your life is it the most memorable when you look back from where you are now well here's the thing it was it was what it was, right? And we had a yeah. tailwind that day. It was the perfect day to run. Right, listen, I, okay, I, I just want to stop you there before you, you go too far on this humble act. Um, <laughs> no, no, but you didn't. 2011 is also the year I ran the Boston Marathon. Um, same tailwind. I managed to do three hours 19, so let's not give that tailwind too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but definitely help. you got okay. to yeah, yeah, mention yeah, it. For sure. But I will say this, though. How I felt... Leading up to that race, I'd never felt that good before. Wait, when, wait, wait, what do you mean? Because um, in your book, you talk about the um, like a warm-up event, yeah, like a half New marathon York. in New York, and there's, there's a saying in New Zealand, shat the bed. I don't know if that's a thing in America, yeah. but you shat the bed. Oh, I felt terrible. Yeah. I had no idea why I felt so bad. But what, yeah, what happened in that half marathon, that lead-up race? I have no idea. I can't tell you. How long did it take you to felt, finish? Felt terrible. I don't even know. Never looked at my time. It was like probably like sixty-four, sixty-five minutes. Terrible. Like that. Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for me, that's yeah, yeah, five yeah. minutes off my PR. Yeah. And I thought I was in PR shape. Like my workouts have been going super well. But you know what happened is I did that race, and then something just went off, like a switch in me. And I, we did change our environment too. We went back to Stanford. I was training at sea level. I had been in Flagstaff training up there at altitude. We dropped down to sea level and I did change the way I was training. It was kind of like one of those deals where I had a really bad race and I was like, screw it. I was like, I'm just going to see what happens. I'm just going to, I'm just going to go run as hard as I can, like hard all the time. So I would be going out for easy runs, running 5.30, 5.20 pace. Yeah. Um, the day before the Boston Marathon, did 30 minutes. I was running under 5.30 pace and wow. just feeling like a million Amazing. bucks. So that's that kind of feeling is more what I base. Like that was probably like, yeah, my best stuff I ever had based on how I was feeling leading up to the race regardless. So it's funny, like I just bombed a race. No one's even thinking about me, but in my head, I was, I was licking my chops. I was like, I I'm feel good. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, and then I saw there was a tailwind and I talked to Bill Rogers before the race and he was like, you get this like once every 10 years. And so I was like, there's me a tailwind this year. I was like, I'm not letting one mile go by without pressing. I was like, I'm going to press the entire way, which is why I went straight to the front and just led as long as I could. And you know, that's how that, that race oh, unfolded. Oh, good. 
So 2011, talk us through that day from start to finish. So the, the night before the Boston Marathon, you're feeling good? You're feeling relaxed? Yeah, yeah. Like, in my mind, it's like all systems go, you know, and I, I'm just looking at the weather and being like, let's let's see what happens out there tomorrow. You know, I'm going to just... And going to the front of a race for me is nothing new. Like, I always loved going to the front. I always felt most comfortable in the front. I think that's something for people to keep in mind. You know, a lot of people try and tell you how you should run. I like to ask my athletes, how are you excited to run? Because that's how you're going to run your best, you know? So that's the primary thing. I, I love being in the front. So, yeah, I mean, I was standing on the starting line at Hopkinton, just staring at the flag, and it's just blowing the direction. We're going. Mean, you know how it was out there. It was it was just perfect, and so gun fired, and then off we went. And you feel you're feeling good. You're feeling good from the outset. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I I can tell. I can tell how I'm feeling so quick on things, and sometimes I am wrong. But like I can literally tell you how this lift is going to go. That I'm about to do by just pick up a 45 pound mm. plate. Feel how, how it feels in my hands. You know. Same thing with run. It's like some days you just warm up and you just feel that bounce in your step. You know, it's like yeah, whoa, dang, yeah. I feel good today, and those are fun days. So you start running. You got the tailwind. You're feeling good. Obviously, you're still in agony, though. Like you're fully, you're fully sending it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the thing is, you just can't second guess yourself when you're doing that. Like once you commit, and for me, it's all about like figuring out how I'm feeling and running according to feeling more than time. Because you can freak yourself out by looking at your watch. You know, I think our first mile is like 4:35 or something like that. But and so you can look at that and be like, oh, dang, I'm running way too fast. What I do, I just messed up. But really, like, I just go back to the sensation being like, if I was in training, I was running this since this effort level, could I maintain this for a 15 mile threshold? The answer is yes, you keep taking it. Because generally speaking for us, like whatever you can do for a 15 mile threshold and training in the context of big training and being tired, you can generally do that on marathon day. Yeah, and you, you finished um, fourth in that race. Yeah, so I was fourth place, the fourth fastest person ever on the Boston Marathon course and fourth place. But you know what? It's funny. You would think that I would be, like, mad about that, right? It's like, what do I have to do to win this race? Yeah, 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 yeah I wanted to know if it was sort of with mixed emotions, like you're stoked with your time but also not even a podium finish. No, it wasn't mixed emotions at all. It was just pure bliss. I came across that finish line, and I was like, yeah, I was so stoked, just yelling, screaming, like, so happy. And, yeah, like, of course it would have been fun to win that race but I was a part of a historic race you know this race has been run that at that time over 120 years when no one had ever run that fast on that course with a tailwind or in any conditions you know and I got to play a role in that and I'll take that over winning the Boston Marathon every day. When did you realize you were on track for a a sub 205 because part of me wonders why you didn't take the the foot off the throttle like you would have still had an American record maybe you would have had a Ryan Hall personal best it wouldn't have changed the place at all right I know oh I had that temptation I honestly what was happening is I saw her half split which was like 61 48 or something it was so fast that the race director he radioed his guys like hey you guys messed up the clock it said they came through in 61 48 like no that's right <laughs> and so like I was surprised too everyone was shocked we were running that fast right um, but after that point I was just looking at my watch I was like okay the goal is to see how much I can go under five minute pace you know for the next mile and every mile would roll by I'd be just clicking off just under five just under five 448 pace whatever and then it was with a mile to go I'm glad they put a clock with a mile to go here because um, I looked at the clock and I was right at two hours and so I was like okay either I can try and like push down and really like hammer this last mile and go under 205 or I can enjoy myself ease off the throttle a little bit and yeah it's not gonna change the place still a really good time still really fast but I was like 
I, I was like, you only get one shot at this. It's, you know, once every 10 years, you can get this kind of condition. It's like, I'm going to make the most of this. So I just gritted my teeth that last mile, ran all the way to the finish line and just squeaked under 205. Oh, that is so that. cool. Yeah. That's amazing. And then after that, um, it seemed like you had like a, like a horrible period for like maybe a couple of years where you were entered in races and then, you know, you wouldn't turn up or you'd be injured or like talk us, talk us through that period. That must, yeah. have been, that must have been miserable. Yeah, it's tough, you know, and it's kind of something all runners go through though mm. at least pro runners go through this right where it's that period of things breaking down your body slowing down and it was a four-year period it started with plantar fasciitis training for the olympic trials and there's there's nothing i could do about that one i just had to keep training through it you have to do the olympic trials if you can go to the olympic games yeah. so i just trained through it and it hurt the whole time and it hurt during the race and it hurt after the race for months and months and there was a slight compensation in my stride and it just threw off the whole system so that's why it's so important for runners it's like don't just be okay with your stride being off because it's going to cause other problems down the line so that started like a four-year chain of injuries for me dropping out of races not getting to races then this whole fatigue thing set in and uh yeah that was that's when I knew it was over looking back over a four-year period of time being like my body is clearly telling me it's got nothing left to give to me and now it's time for me to give back to my body and get into the weight it was kind of like your body shutting down really eh, and saying no more we we can't so your mind was still willing you still had this mind of a of a savage um but your body was just like shutting down on you that must have been um like mentally just a grueling period of your life yeah yeah it was it was it was a real challenge you know like but what I'm I'm glad that I navigated it as well as I could have at that time with the information that I had at the time, you know? Like, I tried everything I could to get myself out of these holes. I shifted my nutrition. I tried different training plans, different everything, right, to try and turn my body around. I was getting blood tests done. And funny enough, like, nothing was coming up in my blood that was showing there was, like, some big problem I was having. It was just, like, my body was just not responding to anything I was doing from a training perspective. So that's kind of how you know, you know, it's like, dude, I've tried everything. I I can't turn the ship around. It's just clearly like getting worse and worse. And so uh, I figured it was time to, to hang it up and move on to the next thing. Now, going back, if I could do it all over again. Um, I would have probably just taken a good, and it's funny, my mom was trying to get me to do this, and I was like, never going to do that. <laughs> like a sabbatical? Like <laughs> yeah, a break? She, yeah, exactly. She wanted me to take like three months off, or like she wanted me to take like six months off or something. But I think if I would have taken three months off and come back to it, maybe things would have turned around. You know, maybe not. I don't know for sure, but yeah, there, you, that's the only question mark I still have. Uh, were you just worried about like losing losing too much in that time I just, in terms of pace or... I just wasn't convinced it would work because yeah. I'd taken time off. You know, it's not well, like I it, hadn't taken any breaks. It makes so much sense, though, right? Like a three month break, it could potentially prolong your career by a couple of years. Yeah, and then what do you do during that three months? I think <laughs> if I would have like done what I did, essentially, maybe not try to put on so much muscle, but get into the gym, like still like be active and like do things to give back to your body because running is just it's real catabolic at the level that we're doing it at you know like like for people who aren't trying to be world class you can run at a very healthy level and still train hard right but like for us like we are right on the edge of overtraining all the time Mm. for years and years and years um to pull back from that and give back to your body for a longer period of time, I think could be really helpful. So, you know, for people who are, 
are struggling and just can't seem to turn the ship around, like that's what I would suggest they do is like take three months off, eat a lot of food, put on some weight, put on some, not just like muscle, put on a little bit of fat. Like, don't be afraid. Like when you're running real light all the time, it's really, really hard on your body. I mean, every time I tested my testosterone when I was running, it was clinically low. Like my T levels were like a hundred like really really low like i should have been on something just from a health perspective you know um obviously we couldn't take anything because you know we're being tested by usada but now look look at me now i'm 40 years old so i was i was 27 my testosterone is 100 now i'm 40 my testosterone is a thousand and not taking anything just just (sighs) eating well sleeping well doing the weightlifting that I'm doing doing and I'm training super hard still mm. you know I lift every single day I run most days do some type of like cardio most days um and so still like training real yeah. hard and yet in such a healthier place right because I'm where my body wants to be yes. whereas like I should be 160 pounds, just a normal dude walking around, but I had to walk around at 140 pounds, 137 pounds, way under the weight that I should have been. Whereas like someone like my wife, Sarah, she's naturally like right around her marathon race weight. So her weight doesn't need to fluctuate a lot and she's in a healthy place the whole time because she's where her body wants her to be. So that's something also for people to keep in mind. It's like, where, where's my natural set point? And then the goal is not to look like someone else or to look like a (laughs) king. A canyon, you know. Well, you, like you're sitting in front of me now, and you look healthy and well, and you, yeah. you definitely look better now than what you were when you were running those incredible times that we talked about before. Yeah, I mean that's how you knew you're fit is when you look kind of <laughs> sick. Like, like and, and it's not great. Everyone knew that. Like, if someone told you, like, dude, your face is looking really gaunt, you were, Thank you, you. you were like, yes, <laughs> I did it. I mean, I was I was in yeah. Ethiopia training for this race one year. And I was buying some groceries at the grocery store in Addis. And the checkout lady, she told me, she's like, you need to eat more food. <laughs> I was like, if someone in Ethiopia. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. It's <laughs> telling you, you you need to eat more food. You've probably taken it too far. And you it was so specific though. It's crazy to me how specific weight plays into our sport. 137 pounds, I'm golden. 135 pounds, I raced this race at 135. I was weak, no good, terrible results. If I'm 140 pounds, not competitive, not going to be in it. It's that specific. We're talking about a couple of pounds Amazing. difference. And it's it, it's a factor in our sport. So it's not like you can just, oh, I'm just going to not pay attention to it. Like you have to, at the world-class level, to try to run with the best guys in the world, it has to be something that you are monitoring, that you are aware of. Yeah. But you got to know how to 
keep your body in a healthy place because if you have an unhealthy spot for too long, it's going to break down and, you know, you're going to have problems. Yeah. Now, I know um, your, your faith is massively important to you, and it has been, and uh, you've got a rock-solid marriage with Sarah. But still, like, it must have been a rough time. Like, you know, here you are, Ryan Hall, the runner. It's sort of like what defines you, and your body was telling you you couldn't do it anymore. Dark days? I thought they would be. Yeah. I was scared to retire. I was always, when I was in it and I was running, I was like, man, when I am not doing this anymore, I don't know if I'm going to be okay, like mentally, because mm. I was so into it. And I was like a dog with its bone, you know? You take that bone away, I'll be like, what am I going to do all day long, you know? But <laughs> Might it, have to get a job. <laughs> yeah, I have to get a real job. <laughs> um, but actually something that, you know, I'm big into prayer and uh, – at one point, I remember just praying and just asking God for just perspective on my situation. I was in an airplane, and I was looking out, and I was thinking about how, like, God just has this different perspective than we have. You know, when you're the, when it's, you're the one down in the mess, the mess seems real big. When you're up above it, you're like, oh, that's not that bad, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I was just asking for just kind of some perspective, and uh, I felt like he was just telling me it wasn't meant to last forever. And it's not meant to last forever for anyone. And that's what makes it so beautiful, you know? It's like we get these brief seasons, these brief glimpses where we get to go experience this really cool thing. But what makes it special is that it's not infinite, you know? It doesn't last forever. But could you see that at the time or is that just with um, hindsight and maturity and... That was just what I needed at the yeah, time to be able to yeah. let go and be... And to not... I think... What happens is when you're going through that and you're at the end of a pro running career like that and you can't figure it out, there's almost like shame and guilt involved in it because you feel like you must have messed something up. You must have done something wrong. There must be some way to fix this problem. Like, what I do that was so stupid to get myself feeling like this? Like, what's wrong with me? Kind of a deal. But when I kind of got that word about it's not meant to last forever for anyone. It's not going to last forever for Kipchoge, not for one person, you know? It kind of be like gives you just a sense of peace like oh that's okay like it, I, I did what I was supposed to do for the season I was supposed to do it and now it's on to the next season you know so it kind of just like just gave me a lot of peace about yeah. it and and allowed me to just move into the next season kind of seamlessly and honestly when I retired I didn't I just told Sarah for about a week and I just tried it on I was like let me just try it out um, my dad always told me to do that he's like when, before you make any big decision just tell yourself that what you're gonna do for about a week see if it feels good see if it feels right and it felt right felt good so then you know we told people a6 and they made a video and then it all kind of came out like a month later but I had already decided like way before that video came out that I was done and I felt like a lot of freedom you know it allowed me to finally be removed from the struggle that I was in in my career and be able to just look back at the Bostons and at the half and just be so thankful for those performances rather than trying to chase them and trying to get back to them. Yeah, yeah. So what would you say is the biggest high and the biggest low of uh, the running chapter of your life? Oh, man. I had so many lows, it's really hard to pull out one of them. Yeah, that's the funny thing about the the sport. eh? You do all this work and you you train for these moments and then the the moment, more often than not, brings you like a low. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I guess I'd have to say my biggest low had to be London uh, Olympic Marathon. Oh, is that the one where you pulled out? You had a hammy or something? Yeah, Yeah, that was the first time I ever dropped out of any race in my entire life. And that was just, I remember the, when I first pulled off, I almost just started running again because I stopped and started walking and just felt so wrong. I was like, this feels all wrong. You know, such a terrible feeling. But I knew I couldn't run. Like, I was, like, limping. My hamstring was really messed up. I was like, I'm going to just 
you know, walk on my hands and knees like six hours <laughs> later or something like this. Not, not wise decision, you know? Um, and then I go from walking and then I go walk over to the media. You got to talk to media and you're just, you haven't figured it out. You haven't had time to process yourself. Mm. This thing just happened to you. You were hoping to just hit a really good day and nail this marathon. And all that just got shattered in an instant. And then you have a microphone right in front of you and they're asking you how you're feeling. And, you know, you're being honest, but you're also like, you're remembering there's little kids watching this. They're looking for like inspiration, you know, and I think it is good to be honest and real, but you're always, I don't know. I was always trying to put a little bit of a positive spin on well, it. You're a positive least, guy. You know? I yeah. think you're, you're more a glass half full than glass half empty. Sort yeah. of guy. It's your disposition. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very optimistic mm. in nature, you know, but when that, when that happens, so you go back to your hotel room, you, you burst into tears. What do you do? You smash it up. For me, it's throw almost, a TV out the window. <laughs> for me, it's almost always like, uh, I don't know, almost like I got numb. Like mm. I couldn't believe in disbelief that it happened at all, you know? It was, it was kind of weird, like, to be honest. And, and I would, sometimes I would process like that. Like I'd go into my garage and have a punching bag in there and just <laughs> punch that bag <laughs> as hard as I can, you know? Um, I guess there were different ways. Oftentimes, to be honest, like a lot of, I'd take it out on eating, you know? Because I'd be very, like... Uh, particular about my diet all my training leading up to it I'm going into this race at 137 pounds like feeling like light and but hungry all the time Mm. when you're controlling your weight like how I was controlling it and I was as low as I was compared to where my natural set point was I would at five o'clock I'm staring at my watch I'm like when do I get to eat dinner when do I'm just starving like you're just hungry all the time I wake up in the middle of the night just starving super hungry right and I eat a snack and then you're starving and like (laughs) you're just hungry all the time so that's a natural kind of thing when the race is over and doesn't go well you're like screw this dude so I remember after after the London Marathon I went to uh, uh, Cinnabon that's like I love cinnamon rolls I can make some mean cinnamon rolls too by the way but uh, I went to Cinnabon and you know it's like right in like downtown London or whatever and the Olympics are just closing up and there's a million people out there and I just got a a big old cinnamon roll I go out to the curb and I'm just pounding this cinnamon <laughs> roll I'm angry <laughs> yeah but then I, I look over and I see this like girl like taking a picture of me on her phone I was like it's gonna be like on the tabloids or something <laughs> oh it's so good my running on a big week I'll do like 60 miles which is 100 k's in New Zealand and I'll, I'll smash anything I want and I'll tell people this is when you eat when you run this much you can eat whatever you want Jeez, you make me feel bad now. no no you can but I would it wasn't just one cinnamon roll one, <laughs> one one cinnamon roll is fine. It was like a two-week bender. Right, okay, right. this was not like one meal, like a yeah. big meal. No. So, so then, so then, after the running chapter is closed, like how long? How long after that were you twiddling your fingers and thumbs watching Netflix before you discovered me you know, lifting? Uh, there's no moments of that. It was straight into the gym. Really? Yeah. Next day, the first day I wasn't running it was the first day I was in the gym. So I just went straight into it and just it was humbling too. I'll tell you something like. Yeah, you would have been you would have been lifting the bar only at that yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. I was super weak, like deadlifting, like not even my body weight, you know, 140 pounds, and it's just feeling heavy. Mm. But there was something about it that I loved, and it was the struggle. I loved it when I couldn't move the weight anymore. Like whatever movement I was doing, if I could get it like part way, and then I'd get stuck, and I'd have to. <laughs> And I'd have to, like, set it down or whatever, you know? And I just absolutely loved that. I loved not being able to be successful. And I just keep – I just – and I still do that to this day. Like, I'm unsuccessful 
almost every single time I lift intentionally, mm. you know, there's something about the struggle of lifting that I just love. And I used to hate lifting before that, by the way, like we were going to the gym four or five days a week. So I was doing stuff in the gym, but I hated it. I'll just try to get through it as quick as mm. I can. And I was doing the wrong stuff. You know, it's like doing the banded body weight stuff, which that stuff does have its place. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but the, what most people are neglecting, most runners are neglecting, which is what I was neglecting is the heavy lifting. Cause you yeah. don't feel like yeah. doing it when you're tired and you're 137 pounds you don't feel like getting under a heavy barbell it freaking hurts the heck mm. out of your shoulders and your traps you have no traps to set it on it's just real uncomfortable you know but again you have to be forced to do the things you don't want to do that's how you get really good at things you know um so i wish i would have been mm. lifting heavy back in the day but i i went from the guy who hated the gym hurried through it to the guy who was embarrassed to be in the gym when i first started out just wear my hat real low <laughs> and i wouldn't look at anyone i just yeah, yeah. i just focus on what i was doing and now i have like my own setup in my garage so i don't i still hardly ever go to a a, a normal gym but i yeah. just love it i'm in there every day and you're you're massive now, and you do these weird challenges as well. I saw one online. Uh, is it the wood chopping challenge? What was what was the wood chopping challenge? Yeah, so that was about a year ago. I chopped a cord of wood at my house. I've always loved wood and splitting wood. And so, how much I, how much is a cord? Like enough for a like cord a, is, to go on the back of a, a pickup truck, a Ute, or yeah, yeah, exactly. It's thing of a pickup truck, but like loaded up right. like ten feet high with wood. Wow. So it's a okay. it's a decent amount of wood. Now I have my buddies helping to stack it, so I was just splitting it. They were stacking it, so that saved me a little time. So I did that in the morning at my house in Flagstaff, Arizona. We drove out to the Grand Canyon, and then I had this, these big seven-gallon water jugs. When they're full, they weigh almost 70 pounds. They're just under 70 pounds. And so I ran down with them empty to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. It's 10K. You drop 5,000 feet. And then I filled them up in the Colorado River at the bottom, and then I farmer carried them out. So just carry them for as long as I could take them, stop, rest, go again, stop, rest. took five hours hours to carry them <laughs> out from the bottom of the Grand Canyon to the top of the Grand Canyon. But it was like, what, what for? What for? Why? Well, it was partially for fun. <laughs> I love, I love doing that. So I would have done it for just, just fun factor alone. And I had like, my little brother was out there shooting it. My friends were out there with me. Like the stars were blazing. The moon was out and the Grand Canyon is just amazing mm. like i just love the grand canyon the views there are just insane so it was just a super fun like challenge for me to do and then we're also like raising water or raising money rather for clean water um for for people in need in africa and stuff like that so yeah. it did have that kind of charity component as well oh that's cool and then um so you retire from running you're lifting for years and th then you go back to running again and you do the seven 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 challenge seven marathons and seven days and seven continents uh, I, this is when I started following you, you on Instagram uh, um, and it was it was refreshing to watch because you did no training for it and you were you were bloody slow <laughs> yeah. and you weren't even bothered by it like uh, I think most people like former athletes of your level would surely have that little bit of ego where you go oh, I don't want someone to see me do a four-hour marathon or whatever but you, you seem free of that yeah yeah, that's kind of the fun thing about not being a pro athlete is it's easier to let your ego go, you know? So it's like I can go, like, run these trails and stuff, and, like, I don't care. Nothing to fast. prove anymore. Yeah, like, I started my – I ran the Grand Canyon a couple of days ago. I started my watch 
And then I never touched it again the whole time. We're stopping and doing stuff. And I think I accidentally stopped it. I have no record that I even ran it. Yeah, you, know? you enjoy running now? Do you just run for joy now? That was the name of one of your books, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's just pure fun. Yeah. I mean, I train to like have fun in the forest, but it's fun to be strong, be able to pull yourself up stuff, go I like going mm. off trail. I know not a lot of people are fans of that, but like I do like treat the, the forest with respect, yeah. but I love just going deep into the mountains where no one else is me and my buddy and we'll just go out there and just be little kids in the forest no shoes no shirt just playing just playing oh, in the forest good. talk us through that 777 challenge you, you get invited to do it by the organizer yeah i got invited by my friend who right. was a pastor at the dream center church in los angeles and so he was going to do it to raise money for his church and so I was friends with him. I was like, hey, like, I'd love to join you, you know, like, let me know if we can make it happen. Sure enough, like, he found a sponsor for me to do it with him. And then we we're both raising money for the Dream Center, which is an amazing church down in Los Angeles, just helping people off the streets doing amazing stuff there so it was, it was cool to like have something besides just me doing this challenge mm. but the trip of a lifetime I mean our first first marathon was in Antarctica and then you're hopping in an airplane you're flying funny enough I flew around the world in a week I didn't watch one movie not one every single time I was on an airplane I was asleep <laughs> yeah because they, they hire a plane right so it's like a like a uh, pri- big private jet how, yeah. how many athletes do it uh, I think there's about 30 athletes right. that were doing it. And then, you know, they have like five or six staff. And they're not like official races. I mean, they're, they're yeah, measure just the course. But yeah, short. loop courses out and backs or whatever. But I was so inspired just by the people on the trip, you know. It's like there was one lady who was there. She has a tumor in her brain. And she's out doing this crazy challenge. There's people with like missing limbs and stuff. Mm. And everyone just had pretty incredible stories, you know. So I love like like the community aspect of that event. But it was really interesting to go from literally like I didn't do one run over 30 minutes leading up to it and I was only running like maybe like two times a week or something like 30 minute runs you know you're an idiot you must have known you're in for a week of hell yeah well this was the debate I had in my head about about four months before this challenge I was like I don't want to run I don't want to train I want to just lift and so either I can enjoy my life and just lift leading up to this and have one kind of painful week or I can like train for this thing have a subpar like three or four months and then have a better week I was like I'll, I'll take the I'll take the first choice so what was your what was your fastest time and what was your slowest time that week can you remember I don't remember the exact times, so but they were around. I was it was really interesting. So I was actually getting in better shape as the week was going on. So my marathon times were coming down. So on day five in Morocco, I actually felt really good. It was crazy. I didn't understand it at all because day four in Spain, I felt terrible. I think so. Your body was just sort of adapting as you went along. Yeah, yeah. it was crazy. Yeah. I was getting a training effect from it. I couldn't believe it. I wasn't expecting to feel better. But day five in Morocco, I didn't break three hours, but I was like maybe like 306 or something wow. somewhere right wow. in there so i was getting quicker i think my first one in antarctica was like 330 or something and but the day before day four in spain terrible i was like had the worst run <laughs> felt terrible my buddy was there and i was like i hate running like i must have said that like a thousand times I was not having a good time and then the next day in morocco I felt amazing. So I started out real slow in that one. But then by the end, like I was charging, like I was running fast. And so I was getting excited. I was like, okay, day six in Dubai. I was like, I'm going to like 
I'm going to keep getting quicker, you know? And I still wasn't, like, the fastest guy on the trip. Like, Mike Wardian was there, and he was running, like, two. Oh, he sub three every day, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, he was running crazy. good, putting out some good times and stuff. So, you know, I wasn't, like, being competitive with anyone but myself. But I was like, I'm going to run fast. But then I was walking in Morocco to get dinner after we finished that race, and all of a sudden I just felt a little bit of a pain in my hip. I was like, that's weird. Like, that pain feels – I kind of recognize it because <laughs> I'd had a stress reaction before. It's just kind of, like, take your breath away kind of pain, you know? So I, I was like, but I was like, maybe, maybe it's nothing, you know, maybe it's fine. There's always like little niggles that pop up and running, you know, I just worked through it. But then day five in <laughs> Dubai, I was like, oh, I'm in trouble. Like I ran the first half and then walked most of the second half of that race because I was in a lot of pain. And I, I don't remember what my time was there, but it had to be over four hours for sure. And then we flew to Sydney for the last marathon. I tried to stand up after laying down and sleeping and I felt like someone just shot me in the hip with a gun i was like i'm in big trouble but you don't run six marathons in six days on six continents and then dnf the last one you know absolutely like not. you find a way to get it done so that last marathon in sydney was it was amazing experience though i was right on uh, i think manly beach I yeah think manly beach. yeah and i was just doing a mile out and back that was the course that day that night we did it at night the moon's out the waves are crashing down and i was just walking back and forth for a mile for the whole marathon it took me well over five i was thinking it was like five and a half hours maybe and uh funny enough you know mike wardian who yeah, yeah. was running under three he finishes his marathon then he's doing a long cool down afterwards and he comes and joins me for a couple of miles i was going too slow even for his cool down but he was like doing a 17 mile cool down so he could hit a 200 mile week that week he's a savage <laughs> yeah he's a savage and then at the finish line you took your shoes off and left them on the line which was that, that, how did that feel that must have been kind of a poignant sort of moment yeah it was i mean it was funny because you know like i said these aren't big races right yeah. so there's like you know 10 people at the finish line or something you know it's not not a big deal but you know after a week like that I, and I, I knew I was going to do this, right? Because this is what wrestlers do in the Olympics. After they know it's their last wrestling match, they just leave their shoes on the mat and they walk away barefoot. And it's kind of the, your way of saying, like, I left it all out yeah, there. There's yeah. nothing left. I'm moving on to the next season. And I think it's important for athletes and people to, like, have something physically that you do that marks the end of a season and for me it was that it was leaving my shoes there and so I remember I was like ah, but it, in my mind it wasn't gonna be a big deal I was like just leave my shoes there walk away that's it no big deal but I, I left my shoes there I got down my knees and took them off and walked away and I almost started like crying as I was walking away by myself you know back to the hotel because it was like whoa yeah like it's like really over now like it was I got to say goodbye to the sport that I love, though, and it was um, – I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to do that because a lot of people don't. You know, you yeah. run your last race. You always think you're going to come back and run another one, or and things just don't work out, and then you just drift off into the next thing. Um, but where I got to, like, have a really cool way to say goodbye to the sport that – gave me so much and brought so much fullness to my life and it's kind of full circle too because you know like my first run was that big 15 mile run around the lake yeah, that challenge yeah. big long hard challenge i started with and i started with and i finished with the seven marathon seven days seven continents a real real big way to finish it out too and you seem like a guy that loves being in discomfort so perfect <laughs> i do i do i crave it <laughs> can we talk about your family for a little bit because this yeah. is a, a remarkable part of the i think ryan hall and sarah hall story so you guys 
talk about this in as much or, or as little detail as you want. Maybe you don't want to talk about it at all. But did, did you guys try and have your own biological kids? We had always just wanted to adopt. Yeah. yeah. Like ever since our first date, actually, Sarah, she told me, she's like, yeah, I've always wanted to adopt ever since I was a little girl. She drew a picture of her with like a lot of different colored nationality kids or whatever. And that was like a moment where for me, it just like struck me. I was like, oh, I've never even thought about adoption. You know, I never saw it. She saw it like she had like family and friends who had adopted before. So she was just around it a lot. So she was exposed to it. But me, I I hadn't been until that moment on our first date. And that, that was really like, that's when I started chewing on it, mulling on it myself. So then when the time came that, hey, we want, felt ready to have kids, um, adoption just was what we always wanted to do, you know. And it makes a ton of sense, too, for pro runners, right? It's like for, for women, it's like you get pregnant, have a kid, you lose, you know, nine months of, uh, of your career yeah, as well. Yeah. So. Why Ethiopia? Yeah, because you adopted um, four sisters from Ethiopia. Yeah, why Ethiopia? I know they've got a, a massive like um, orphan problem there. Something like four million orphans and orphanages around the place. Yeah, exactly. So you know we. One of my favorite parts about running is we get to go train wherever we want, you know. So we'd been all over the world racing and training. And so when you travel that much, you realize how there's certain places that just kind of grab you, you know. You're just like, oh, man, this just feels like my kind of people, my kind of place. Like, like there's just something special about this place that just grabs you. In Ethiopia, it was always like that for Sarah and I. Like, there's just something about it that we just love, like the culture, mm. the people, the land, the training, um, everything about it, the dancing, the food, you know. But you do see, I mean, you walk around Addis on the streets and kids come up to you and, like, want to shine your shoes for five cents, you know, and they're stoked when you pay them double. You pay them ten, they're, like, running <laughs> off to all their friends, like, hey, I got ten cents, you know. But it just breaks your heart. You're like, man, what's, what's going to happen to this kid? Like, how's you know, how's he can get himself out of the situation. So you want to do something, right? And so, you know, we have our own foundation, the Hall Steps Foundation. And that's just because, like, it's like just everyone's just got to do a little bit of something. And then we can take care of these problems that we have in the world. You know, I really believe that. So for us, it was like, yeah, seeing all these kids on the street, like, we can't, we can't totally fix the problem ourselves, but we can do we can take our step, you know? And so we decided we wanted to adopt from Ethiopia and then we were just going to adopt an infant kid. That was always, you know, our plan. That's what most people start with. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, there's been so many studies done about nurture versus nature and uh-huh. how something like 80% of a brain development is done in the first thousand days or three yeah. years. So I suppose people will think yeah, that'll be the, the, the easiest option. Just yeah. get, get a, Get a, get a kid that's not pre-programmed. Yeah, yeah. And, and was that your intention initially? Yeah, that yeah. we wanted to just be a part. Yeah, and you want to experience it too as a parent. You yeah, know? You want yeah. to see what Stages. it's like to have that tiny little kid and hold them, you know. So I get it, you know. I don't, like, slight people for adopting infants <laughs> or for wanting to have infants. You know, it's great. Um, but what we saw is visiting the orphanage, we were, like, number 76 on a waiting list to adopt an infant, and that waiting list was barely moving at all. We would have waited. We would have never got an infant because they ended up closing down international adoption. Um, but when we were there, we were visiting these orphanages, and we saw all these older kids just waiting for families. We are like, this doesn't make sense. We're yeah. waiting for an infant. They're waiting for families. And after playing with the kids, interacting with the kids, like, they're such great kids. We were like, man, we'd, like, adopt any one of these kids in a second. So we did that. We went home. We changed all of our paperwork up and um, jumped through a whole bunch of hoops. Like, in adoption, they call it being paper pregnant because you got to just do so much paperwork. <laughs> and so it was insane how hard it is to adopt. It's hard. They make it hard yeah. on you, you know? Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, we you guys had to do four times the paperwork. Yep, yeah, we did. <laughs> and but yes, we decided we want to adopt kids, and we became aware of uh, girls, these four sisters, and it was just them. There's their whole family, just the sisters. And uh, what, do you, what do, do you know? What's what's the backstory? What happened to the parents? Yeah, we kind of let the kids tell the story if they okay. want. So uh, I try not to get too much into that. But yeah, they they had no other option though. Right. Like they weren't they weren't safe in their village where they were. No parents. So like it's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, they were in yeah. a really tough situation. So yeah, we decided that we were going to adopt uh, our kids. Well, actually, it wasn't that simple. We we wanted to give them choice in the matter because like usually kids are adopted and they don't have any choice. Like you know, these parents roll up and like, hey, you're coming with us, you know? <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so we we went to the to the orphanage and we kind of just like pretended like we were there playing with all the kids or whatever, you know. And we were there playing with all the kids, so I guess we weren't pretending. But really, like we knew like we were gonna ask these girls if they wanted to join our family. But we wanted them to just get to know us as normal people first, yeah. not potential parents, you know? So I'll never forget, uh, after about a week just hanging out with all the kids in the orphanage, we brought in our girls, and we asked, through a translator, asked them if they wanted to join our family. And told, you know, we had told them about ourselves, and they knew about us and stuff. And I'll never forget their reaction. They all just, like, started screaming and crying, and they were, like, so excited. We were all in tears, you know? And but I think that was really important for them to feel like we were not only choosing them, but they were also choosing yeah, us yeah. in the process. And that was that sounds uh, like an episode of X Factor when they get told <laughs> they go to boot camp or something. <laughs> no, right? So, so what were the age ranges at the time? So at the time they were five, seven, eleven, and fifteen. So yeah, and they they were all how, how long had they, how long had they been there? They had been in the orphanage for three years, and they were having a hard time finding a family for them. So they were talking about splitting up the the girls, so sending two to one family and two to another family. And I grew up in the middle of five kids, and so I know like I couldn't imagine being split up from my siblings. Yeah. And they're you know they're talking about splitting them to different countries. It's like they're probably never going to see each other again. I was like I couldn't imagine doing that, and so I was like, no, that's not not okay with me. Oh, that's you know? a really cool. Th- I know you guys didn't do it for the uh, the kudos or anything, but it's a really cool thing you've done. Yeah, well, there's there's amazing kids. Yeah. Like we feel like we've gotten super blessed, super lucky yeah. to to have them as our kids now because they're they're not standard kids. It's like I was out uh, doing a photo shoot with ten thousand down in Sedona. Uh, just two days ago and I, I was trying to rush to get there to pick up my daughter from school and my 19 year old daughter who drives she had already gone and picked up Lily without even like texting me or telling me she just knew that I wasn't going to make it and went and picked her up so like they do stuff like that all the time where I'm like you guys aren't normal kids they're they're really special <laughs> do they have English as a second language or was it just they didn't know any English coming right. over here never been to school before so you can imagine it was a real challenge especially for the older ones you know our younger two now they've forgotten Amharic unfortunately we were trying to have them retain that because we do go back all the time we were just there uh, training for this race um, and visiting Ethiopia but they they, they've forgotten him, Mark. But the older two, you know, they're they still their English is really good. One is at GCU, Grand Canyon University, in college, uh, and then our other daughter, she's going to NC State next year. They both run, so they're they're awesome. doing great. They've uh, amazing to me because 
when I go over to Ethiopia, like me speaking Amharic is so hard. Like my Amharic <laughs> is so terrible. So I couldn't imagine getting plopped into an Amharic speaking school in, in Addis and trying to survive. But they've they've been able to pull it off, and they're just they're doing great. They're so what, what what do they know about America, or what do they make of it when they? I'm, I'm th- all I can think of is the like the Eddie Murphy movie coming to America. Right. Well, what's funny is so they grew up out in the sticks, no TV, no cars, no nothing. Right. Never seen a white person or anything like they're out in the sticks like they grew up throwing rocks at monkeys to like keep them away from their like cattle and stuff like that <laughs> they have rocket arms though all of them they can throw because they're ever since they're little kids yeah i know i was thinking that we actually had one of our daughters try the javelin um but what happened is then they you know came to the orphanage and then the orphanage they had tv and so they started watching all these disney movies and stuff which was good because exposing them to english and stuff but they also got exposed to a lot of american stuff so we were actually surprised they weren't super shocked by a lot of things when they came back to the states because they'd seen a lot of it already on tv but we also couldn't talk to them super well because they only knew amharic we knew limited amharic although sarah's amharic was pretty good and uh but yeah they they were was all pretty i remember there was one moment we were in an elevator we walked in an elevator this is actually an addis and i knew they were gonna freak out because i knew they had never been in an elevator before. <laughs> imagine you walk into this room this door closes behind you you're in this little box you press this button and then all of a sudden it drops they were like ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah they just lost it in this elevator <laughs> I can only imagine, I, I, like, when I was a kid, I was petrified of escalators and malls, like uh, getting on them and getting off them. I can't imagine like navigating one of them for the first time when you're 15, 16 years old. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there was more of those that we didn't even know about. Like I think like the hand dryer thing got them a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> There's there's a couple things for so, sure. So what are their ages now? Uh, so now our oldest is 22, and then we have 19 year old, yeah. uh, 15, and then 12. Yeah. And they, they they call you mum and dad? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that was actually one of the cool things, you know, from someone who never even thought about adoption, um, how normal it's all felt. Like even being you know, a biracial family, like I never even. I don't feel it or think about it or it's not on my radar, you know. I mean, there's moments where I'm sensitive to it, you know, especially when it's, you know, trying to explain to them things that are happening in America that have to do with race and stuff, like trying to do a good job of talking to them about those things. But um, just how normal it's felt and organic it's felt for both of us, you know, for for us and for the girls has been really cool and really kind of a surprising thing. I always thought I'd just walk around and be like, whoa, I can't believe, like, these are my kids. But it was like right away, it was like, yeah, mom, dad this is my daughter like i don't even think about but you know sometimes we still get you know people who think like my daughter is my wife or something like that we'll get we'll get we'll get things and i have to like go through security be like yes these are my daughters you know like so yeah so the the eldest who you said is 22 now is she sort of like a a, i suppose a mum figure in a way to the others as well because i guess when they're in i just think when they're in that orphanage for those years i suppose that was her sort of defunct role the the older two for sure definitely like watch out for them a lot especially actually mia our second oldest she's she'll just come home start cleaning the house start making food like because you know in, in ethiopia it's like even though she was really small at the time 
that's what she was doing. Like she was running the show at her house, helping with all the chores. Oh. And so, you know, kids who grow up in that atmosphere, then come here, definitely aren't used to the like mom and dad doing everything for you. Sometimes we got, we call her mama Mia sometimes. <laughs> she'll just be doing all the mom things. You're like, mom, you don't have to be mom right now. We, we got this. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. Hey, thanks so much for your time today. It's been fantastic to sit down with you and pick your brains and share some of these stories. Yeah. We talked about your life before being in chapters like the running chapter and the weightlifting chapter and I suppose a shorter chapter but a chapter nonetheless the dad chapter what do you think's next well you just don't know I don't know and I like not knowing actually you know like I think that's what makes I'm learning to embrace the beautiful mystery of life you know like it's I don't know what's coming down the line, and I love that. And I know it's going to change and evolve, you know. So I'm just trying to get better at, like, adapting as I go and just embracing things for what they are, you know. It's like even for Sarah in this marathon, it's like we have no idea how Monday is going to play out, you know. But if you're going through it looking for things to be grateful for and looking for the blessings, you're going to find them. But if you're going through it like this has to happen for me to be happy, I have to hit this time, I have to hit this goal, I have to beat this person – and a lot of these things are outside of your control. Mm-hmm. Like that's, it makes it hard to be happy in life when you're living like that. So yeah. just trying to kind of like change how I navigate life and be more like the stream that can just roll. With, <laughs> Flow like the water. It just rolls yeah, with anything. Yeah. You just roll down anything. Yeah. Well, I saw a quote on Instagram. It said something like um, uh, happiness, happiness needs to be where you are now. It can't be something you're chasing because if yeah. you're chasing it, you're never going to get it. No, nope, never going to get there. Yeah. Pot of gold. <laughs> Ryan Hall, the fastest American man ever, over half. Ma- oh, by the way, will you be sad if or when those records are broken? How will that feel? No, I'm hoping I can coach one of my athletes to break it. I have this guy BS Mbasa who I'm coaching right now, American guy. Um, he's already run 60 minutes for the half, and I'm like, dude, when are we going to break this thing? Let's go. I'm ready. So I'm, I'm excited. You know, we need to take this thing to the next level. It's always, you know, my ceiling is meant to be other people's floors. We're, we're meant to take this thing higher. So, no, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to kiss that record goodbye. Yeah. And, and if he does it in the new shoes, you can go, well, you did have the, <laughs> you had the show. I didn't have the shoes. I had bendy shoes. <laughs> exactly. Hey, a, picture uh, me on Instagram, bending my <laughs> shoes. <laughs> That's so solid now, eh? That's so, so oh, firm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so different. It's so different. Yeah, well, Ryan Hall, I know you're itching to get to the gym right now. By the way, what is it today? What are you doing? So today's a, I'm changing up my splits a little bit. So today's a push day. So let's go push, pull, push, pull. Right. It's a little bit upper body, a little bit lower. But today's actually, yeah, push day. So I'll do a little chest, do a little tricep, shoulder, something with my quad, something with my calves. But honestly, how I like to do now, I just walk into the gym and I'm going to do all pushing movements, but I'm like, what am I craving today? What sounds like fun? What do I have available? Because I'm being in this hotel gym. We'll see what they got up there. <laughs> Actually, I already know what they got because I've used it a bunch. But um, that, that's good though. You know, being creative, again, being water, being able to flow with what yeah. you have, I think is, it makes it more fun. I love it. Hey, so good to meet you. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you being on the podcast. Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Ryan Hall. Thanks, Don. Before we go, thanks very much to Radix Nutrition for sponsoring this episode. If it's protein powders, smoothie recovery powders, or freeze-dried, just-add-water-to-the-packet meals that actually taste nice, you need to check Radix out. RadixNutrition.co.nz. That's spelled R-A-D-I-X. Couple of housekeeping things before we go. You can message me anytime you want with any feedback, guest suggestions, whatever. I'm on Instagram, DomHarveyNZ. And if you don't do so already, it would be epic if you could subscribe to the podcast. Um, on Spotify, you just hit the little bell or the little cog, screwy logo thingy to auto-download. 
And in Apple, I think you just click the follow button. And if you do feel so inclined, it would be awesome if you gave the podcast a rating or review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever it is you happen to be listening to this right now. Actually, even better, uh, share it on social media or tell a friend about it who you think would enjoy it. Okay, that's enough homework for you guys. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. And I do hope to see you next time on Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.